Hello and welcome. This is Harry's Last Stand. Or it used to be Harry's Last Stand, but you probably all know Harry died a little over a year ago uh, at the age of 95. But I'm his son, John. And for the last little while, I've been trying to continue on his legacy that I helped build with him over the past 10 years when we traveled the world to try to not make his past our future. And I'm just here to, to report on what's happened over the last year, what's with me, what's with Harry's legacy, where we go from here. And uh, it was a tough year, an incredibly tough year after the death of my father. The grief was enormous because we had lived and worked so closely together and he was the last living remnant of my family, of my past and my history. He was the one that I remembered from the earliest memories, and now he's gone physically. Emotionally, he's still with me. Uh, but it's it's a much different thing. And uh, it, it, it was a very long and arduous year where I tried to fulfill his speaking obligations and travel to as many refugee camps, as well as get as much written uh, for the book about his life and ours over the last 10 years that would shed more light on his experiences, on his emotions, on his interpretations, and mine as well, of what is going on in this world and what went on in his past history. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it was, like I said, a, a, an interesting but uh, uh, hurtful year in many ways. And uh, I, I, I think probably I didn't realize it at the time why my melancholy was so pronounced was I found out pretty well a year to the day that he died, uh, that I had cancer. And it sort of explained my, my feelings of sadness over the autumn months, uh, because I felt that my energy was fleeing from me, and I somehow perceived that things weren't right. I knew they weren't right during the general election, where I'm marching around Yorkshire and just feeling the exhaustion ache through my bones and returning to a hotel room or to a friend's couch or to wherever I was going to kip that night and just collapsing, exhausted. And I'm 56 and I'm quite energetic, quite healthy, despite the fact that I had a heart attack at 43, but I'm a non-smoker. I, I walk eight to 10 kilometers a day, sometimes more. I'm, I'm incredibly active so that it didn't make sense, this lethargy of spirit and this overwhelming sense of hopelessness that I had, which, you know, I sort of tied into to the way labor was trounced and also how the left was being beat up all across the world. But as it turns out, it might have been some of that, but it was that there was a three centimeter piece of malignancy growing in my rectum. And uh, it was found in a colonoscopy right after the election. And then after that colonoscopy, there was the blood tests and the MRI and CAT scan. My, my MRI was done on New Year's Eve. And I can tell you that that is perhaps one of the loneliest of feelings, to have an MRI done it, uh, on New Year's Eve while everybody else is preparing uh, to say goodbye to the old year and welcome the new year with some hope and optimism, I knew, in fact, I was 100% sure that I had cancer. And then 
the first week in the new year, I went to see the surgeon who had uh, performed the colonoscopy, and the doctor's office is all empty, and uh, everybody is very funereal in their own way. And I, I know immediately what the bad news is going to be, and the doctor, you know, brings me into his into his uh, consultancy office and sits me down, and he says, you know why you're here? And I said, of course I do. I have cancer. And it's sort of, he had that look of relief on his face that he goes, I don't have to explain it to him. I just have to show him the pictures of where the cancer is. And he says, within a span of six minutes, this is your cancer. This is how we're going to operate. You may have a colostomy bag. You may not. It might be on your right side. It might be on your left side. If it's on your left side, be worried because it's permanent. If it's on your right side, it's not permanent and back and forth. And all of these images are going in your head. And all you want to do is get the fuck out of there and get a drink in you and just say this is not happening to you. But anyways, after he said all of this stuff, he said, I want to get you onto the operating table on the 27th of January. And a week previous to that, I had done some searching because I live in a very s relatively small town of 50,000 people. And I'm no words bad about the surgeon. He's, he's an excellent surgeon. There's no harm or foul against him. But I, I was loathe to the idea of being operated on in my local uh, hospital for a four-hour surgery. So I did some checking, and I found a, a great cancer center, and, and I contacted the, the lead surgeon there, and I explained my situation, and he said that he would be happy to consult and look at everything and see if they could do something, especially because they do laparoscopic surgery. So with this, uh, this first surgeon, I, uh, I went to him. I said, you know, I really love, you know, that you want to operate quickly and get this thing out, but I'm going to take it off to somebody else. Uh, that this is all they do. Uh, so to see if there is anything better that can happen to me. But a long story short, after more partial colonoscopies, something called a transrectal ultrasound, which I will tell you is incredibly painful once it goes past the prostate, uh, that all of those tests I finally saw my surgeon or my uh, the, the 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 one one person from the surgical team uh, that will be performing my operation because the the lead surgeon was away on call and he went through and he said well we think this might be a T1 or it could be a T2 or it could even be a T3 because the MRIs are inconclusive with rectal cancers and they are if you google it you find out that they are inconclusive they can't really tell until they get inside so it was we can perhaps do this uh, laparoscopically. Uh, we can, you know, perhaps you will have a colostomy, perhaps you won't, we just won't know. But one thing I did find out, which was new, is that they're going to radiate me first for five days. And that is because they found some, uh, th their interpretations of the uh, MRI found some uh, nodes that looked anomalous. I love that word anomalous because, you know, that means cancer. But anyways, they want to clear up the field by radiating it for five straight days and then giving me a couple of days off and then operating. So I think sometime by about the 17th of February, I will be going through the radiation. What did, which is something I was a little bit surprised by was that I found out, and it, it's not a big thing, but it is a big thing. It's that I will be made sterile by this procedure of radiation. And 
it's one of those things that I'm 56. I doubt very much that I would have children. Uh, but it's one of those things when you're told that this is going to happen, it immediately marks your mortality or your, your biological end of necessities. And it, 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 it's another indication, because this is what I want to talk about in this, because it's all tied up into this, is, is this sense of mourning that you are changing with cancer. And I know this before, because when I had my heart attack in 2006, I became a different person. I was not the same person. And, and the heart attack was quite extensive. I, I survived it. My heart is in perfect condition now. Uh, it, is, it functions well and that sort of thing. But a heart attack could have killed me. It didn't. But it changed me. Because once you know that you are mortal, you change. And once you feel the pain to know that you can die at any moment, you change. You change psychologically. You change emotionally. I felt great nervousness at the beginning of my uh, recovery from my, my, my heart attack. And after that, you know, all you're doing, all of the exercising, you're fighting for your life and all of this stuff. And once it's all said and done and there weeks have passed since your heart attack and you are out there exercising and you stop. And I remember stopping and thinking, this is it? It was the greatest sadness ever because I thought I had fought and all of this stuff and I felt absolutely alone and depressed. Now that depression passes and it, and it passes and all of this stuff, but it, it does leave a mark on you. Any type of disease that is long-lasting will leave a mark. It, it changes you. It evolves you into something else. And the heart attack, by all intensive purposes, I think made me a better person. I don't think I was a bad person before, but I became a person that realized that time was short. So it's better to use that time uh, for utility that is lasting, that is good, that is profound, that is loving, which is how, all in all, Harry's Last Stand began, because I was in my own business and that sort of thing, and I curtailed it after my brother died to take care of my dad, and somehow this became the genesis of Harry's Last Stand. So. My heart attack, I thought, was brilliant in a lot of ways, and I, I, I don't regret it, because in the end, if I hadn't had my heart attack probably at 43, I would have been dead at 50 from a massive one. But this cancer thing threw me for a loop, because I thought, Jesus Christ, I don't deserve this. Nobody deserves cancer. But you're going, my dad has just died. I, 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 I perhaps you know, didn't take care of my health as good as I could, because I was a caregiver for him. But I, was in, I thought I was in good health. I saw my GP all of the time. I, you know, I, I had you know, my, my yearly stress test for my heart and all of this stuff. I didn't, I didn't smoke. I, I drank you know, one shandy a night. So I'm going, I'm not, I'm not on the piss or anything like that. So it just really threw me for a loop. And especially, and it doesn't really matter statistically because colon cancer is such a, is so prevalent that it, 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 but it still threw me for a loop because it's not my family's disease. I thought, you know, lung cancer, yeah, because I did smoke. But this, no. And it really sent me on a bit of a downward spiral. And I'm still in that spiral because I'm still trying to conceptualize this thing, first of all, that I have to go through all of this. I am alone. I have friends. But the, the point is that friends, it's a lot to ask to be caregivers. And I'm also somebody that believes in their own autonomy. So I'm finding it also very hard just to even take, you know, the, the least amount of help. 
because it, it is a hard thing to surrender, even temporarily, your autonomy. And I, when I did it with my dad, I did it in such a perfect way that half the time he didn't know that he had surrendered his autonomy because it was given to him in such a way that he never under, he, he was not able to find out all of the wheels and pulleys behind it. And that's the way I wanted it because I wanted him to have that illusion of freedom, especially during his last months and weeks. But with this, I know I don't have any autonomy. I know I am in the hands of doctors who are brilliant and professional. I know I'm in the hands of fate. And I, I find it fearful. I find it also angering. It angers me sometimes. Not to the point that I want to punch a hole in a wall or anything like that, but where I'm just so pissed off and fed up of the Sisyphusian grind of walking up a hill with a rock to have it roll all the way back down again and have to do it again and again. And I will do it again and again until I am no more. But it is a despairing feeling right now and it will change because I know we're in winter and that sort of thing. And I'm also thinking in the back of my head, how much will this cancer surgery mutilate me? And I'm sure everybody feels this way. Most people won't talk about it or they'll pretend to be stoical and say, you know, you know, chin up and all of this stuff. And I will be that chin up person once it's done, right, to a certain degree. And I will learn to accommodate myself to whatever happens to me. But now, while this is all going on, it is a, it's a, it's a formulating, uh, it, it, it's a forming of a new nebulous, a new John, so to speak. And I'm fighting it. And I think that everybody must fight this when they have cancer. Sometimes, you know, with articulation, sometimes in silence, I don't know. But that's what I wanted to talk about today, because this, as this goes on, I think maybe I'll use this a bit to talk in a raw footage fashion, because I'm not going to use notes or anything like that. I'm just going to open up my mouth and see what comes out. And, and maybe some of it will make sense, and maybe others will just make no sense. Oh, geez, he's off his rocker. I don't know. But I think the thing is, is that what I'm finding is, is that when you're alone and when you have a serious illness, um, there are, even in public health care, a lot of helpful things. And there's a lot of nothing because we've lived through such long periods of austerity that there are no social safety networks and that sort of thing. And, and that you just have to sort of get along and hope everything works out for the best. Because I know that the doctors are gonna save me. It's just everything after that. I have no clue how I'm going to survive sometimes. And I need to have this feeling, and I want, and I desperately want to finish the book about my father and me. I desperately want to build this foundation and get everything in, in, in order. Because I, 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 I will probably have decades left to me, but I need to get this down now especially because we live in such desperate times. And uh, I, like anybody else, just doesn't know how this is all gonna play out. So, on that, because I've spoken for 15 minutes, or thereabouts, I'll leave you, and uh, thank you for listening. And remember, the thing that my father believed in was hope. But the point was that that hope was created because he had a family that loved him and worked with him and gave him that support network.
If that didn't exist, my father would have been like most people, and like me now, somebody that feels adrift. And I know that I will find my sails again and find my compass point, but I'm just looking at the stars, hoping I recognize something so I can sail my way to a land that I want to live in. So with that, I bid you adieu. Thank you again.